If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome back to the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where I talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that's just not sports. I am your host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago in yet another very, very hot and humid and bug-infested Chicago. Thank you to everyone for the feedback on last week's episode. Appreciate all of uh, all, all, all the feedback for that. Rolling ahead, though. Rolling ahead and also looking back a little bit this week. Because my guest, who is on the line, is a blast from the Just Not Sports past. He is a multiple-time Emmy-winning producer for CBS Sports. You have seen his work at the Super Bowl, the Final Four, The Masters, you may have caught the Emmy-winning documentary Game of Honor about the Army-Navy football game, which he was a producer on. He has logged time working for the Patriots and the Craft Network, producing their swim, uh, producing their cheerleading swimsuit special every year, which, yeah, how'd he get that gig? Oh, and, you know, he was like the co-host of the show for three years where he manned the fort at our (laughs) Brooklyn Bureau, and he's one of my lifelong friends and was the best man at my wedding. He is Gareth Hughes. Gareth, what is the craziest Brooklyn thing you've seen since we last talked on the pod? Uh, boy, somebody came out here the other day and they got off the train and she said the first words that she heard out of somebody's mouth were, I'll send you their number. It's called Peace Love Doula. <laughs> so that was that was our recent winner right there. That's like so. that Thirty Rock where uh, Liz Lemon's trying to give the hard sell on uh, why she loves New York, and and like some as she's talking, like some homeless guy walks by and like spits in her mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and I always think like yeah. New Yorkers have that fascination with like how wonderful it is to live there, and yet they're all the all they do when they when I talk to them is complain about living there. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that's that's a hundred that's a hundred percent accurate. So, yes. You still have one of my favorite New York interactions is when you came to visit. I live around the corner from Lucali's Pizza, which is, if you've seen David Chang's Netflix show, it was like the first episode. And it's like Jay-Z's favorite pizza. And it's impossible to get into. It's a four-hour wait every night. But it used to be you could get takeout there if you kind of like asked the right way. And I took Brad to get takeout there. And it was cash only, and they laughed at him for wanting a receipt. And we had to stand in front of a blasting hot. It was the middle of summer, and we had to stand in front of like a blasting exhaust fan while they went to get his receipt. And all these people were lined up, excited to eat like the most exclusive pizza in New York. And Brad was holding two pizzas, and we finally left. And he turned to me and just looked at me and said, Gareth? I hated every single part of that interaction. <laughs> I really, I still do. I'm, I'm angry just thinking, I mean, I'm sorry, dude. It's, 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 you're in Brooklyn. Like, you don't have a credit card, like, apparatus. Like, you're only not having one as an FU to the, like, because they can do the whatever system. they want. That's part of their gig. And, but I loved it was the difference between, like, the people immediately to my right or, like, you were standing to my left. I, I had my back to the door. You were standing to my left fuming, and the people immediately to my right were just like 
chewing their nails down to the quick, hoping they would be the next one called to get in. Like the difference between the two of you, like these two people could not have been greater. So yeah. that's living in New York in a nutshell versus not caring about Like if you opt out, none of it makes sense. You have to opt all the way in. And I don't want to. I don't want to make it seem like I'm like I'm one of those people who hates New York. I go to New York quite a bit for work. I've learned like to love lots of things about the city as you get exposed to them. I live in Chicago. Like it's not like I. It's like Gareth. I mean, Gareth and I are from. I don't want to say the sticks, Gareth, but you know, I could hit a. We were from a small. I could hit a town. golf ball into a cornfield from my neighborhood. Like we were from yeah. a small Ohio town, and we both have landed in two of the, you know, three or four largest cities. In, in, in America, but I do think, you know, even having lived downtown in Chicago, even working still downtown in Chicago, it's night and day, man. Like, we have, like, alleys here, and you can drive places. Right, right, like, there, right. it's just, there's a level of congestion that I think breeds a particular form of anxiety in people who who don't live there. And, that, and, and yet, I think most people that I would talk to that live in New York would say, yeah, it's like, getting into a hot tub and within five minutes you're like yep this is what it is like i'm good yeah well this is also a special time of year like if they skip a trash pickup for a day or two which happens sometimes and just that stuff just like cooks out on the sidewalk and i just i it's one of my favorite things to walk by and just be like look at this rotting trash pile in the july 90 degree heat most expensive city in america everybody wants to live here (laughs) so (laughs) well look it's good to have you back on the show. It's nice to be back. Nice to yeah. be back on the pod as a guest. Oh my gosh! I mean, un- unreal. Uh, you don't get you don't get credit for booking this one though. <laughs> I didn't book many. So <laughs> I think the final numbers were something like Brad booked, like Gareth booked like eighteen, Adam booked like sixteen, Joe booked one, and Brad booked like hundred and thirty and counting. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, we'll get it. We'll talk. We'll talk just on sports later. Let me. We're gonna transition now to your topic. Let me. Let me start with this. It's yard work season in Chicago, which is an incredibly difficult and painful time. And and I was pulling up weeds the other day, and I got this splinter in my in my finger. And like all week, it just I could not get this splinter out. It was getting more and more painful. And then last night, I finally like dug in there with a with a needle and with tweezers pulled out what was like the liquefied goo remains of it. And it just was like the most intense body horror and difficult thing to deal with physically that I could even imagine. So, you know, with that said, Gareth, I just, you know, again, in the spirit of catching up, like what's new with you, man? What, what, are, what are you dealing with these days? Uh, I have cancer. Oh. Awkward. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah. Look, okay. So <laughs> let's just give our listeners some context here. We have already spoken about this at least a couple times. We've been texting yes. about it for quite a bit. I don't want to seem callous. I think, Gareth, when we talked about coming on, we said, let's let's talk about this. Let's address this. Let's uh, kind of open the door up for how friends talk about someone going through a, uh, you know, clearly a, a critical life situation. So if we seem overly callous, this is a good, I get I get reminder that these are two lifelong friends who have who have had, you know, moments where we have tried to grapple with the reality of the situation. I came and visited you in New York. Uh, we've been texting yep. frequently throughout uh, the process here. So if we just seem callous, please just, you know, let that roll off your back. But- no, no, listen, I'll, I'll say this. One of the things that I said to a friend here early on, like, 
one of my buddies made a joke and then immediately apologized. And I was like, no, no, we're done with that. I was like, there is no too soon and there is no too far. And we'll find it together when it happens. So, you know, like, this is going to take a, is going to take a while and this is going to be going on for a while and it's going to take a lot mentally and spiritually and physically. And so I think sense of humor is going to be a big part of that. So I mean, you can of, say whatever you want. Of all the cancers too, because people, longtime listeners know you haven't had a drop of alcohol in forever. You don't, you don't abuse your body. And I look, and I think you, you've been pretty open where doctors have said, even if you had been like, you're still too young to really have the life cumulative well, that, effects. So this is, yeah, this is where I want to like, this is I want my moment here. Like this is my just not sports hobby here, Brad. This is what I'm into when I'm not doing are, are sports. You, this are, is, you, are you accusing me of silencing you about about cancer? <laughs> no, no, no. But like, no. This is like the second time in my life I've had cancer. So this is like, what are you into when you're not doing sports? I am into rare age inappropriate cancers. Because that is true. We have joked on the podcast about the fact that I was 11 months old and I had testicular cancer and. That all worked out fine because uh, I went on to have two beautiful kids, a boy and a girl, whatever, and it was great. So now we also talked on the pod. The podcast happened at a time in my life when I was quitting drinking. And so it's almost, it's, I talked about that a lot on here, and it's almost this sort of, um, I don't know, artifact of that moment of me kind of finding sobriety. And so now in about three weeks, uh, yeah, three weeks, like mid-August, I will be uh, four years sober without a drink. And it was that, but it was this April that I was diagnosed with, of all things, liver cancer. And it took a moment. There was a, there were a period of some pretty good freakouts on, did I do this to myself? Was this my fault? Did I, did I quit drinking and then get and it's going to be liver cancer that gets me. And, you know, it, what basically was said, and I had said this to a doctor this week when they asked about it and she laughed. Um, eventually, after freaking out a little bit on my oncologist, uh, second opinion oncologist, he kind of looked at me and was like, we're unimpressed with your level of consumption here. <laughs> you know, like right. to get here at your age with this diagnosis and what I've been diagnosed with is something called intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. It's actually, um, a bile duct cancer, uh, of the bile ducts within your liver, not necessarily, not just the liver itself. Uh, but he basically said, he was like, you would have had to keep drinking and drinking a lot to end up here at age 39. Um, but yeah, so that's what I'm into, just not sports style. When not working in sports, I am into having cancers. <laughs> so, you in our talks, you've kind of opened my eyes to different parts of this experience. And I know a lot of people who I've known a number of people who've had cancer, who've gone through chemo. You're, you're the first person who ever described, "Wow, cancer hurts." Can you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the 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 thing that first got me into the hospital and got me diagnosed was pain in my liver or in like in my side. And, um, I went into like a minute clinic complaining about pain in my midsection and they said, uh, Oh, it seems like classic gallbladder to us. So they sent me to, uh, an ER, uh, for imaging. 
And I have to say, like, everybody along the way did their job. Like, nobody, like, blew past the sign or just said, like, oh, we'll send you home with some pain meds and take care of it. And so I I went to an ER, and they did a CAT scan. Um, what was it? A CAT scan, uh, an ultrasound, and a chest X-ray on a Saturday night. And they, basically this woman, Amy, who I'll never forget her name or her face, uh, she has my wife's name, so that helped, but she sat me down. She's like, it's not a gallbladder. You have spots on your liver. I'm going to admit you to the hospital right away. It's one of two things. It's either a liver infection, which you don't have the story for, or it's liver cancer. And so we're going to admit you now and put you on pain meds to deal with that. And so throughout, and so that, that led to the diagnosis and things like that. But one of the main issues I've had to deal with throughout is pain. And uh, a few weeks ago, I was admitted, I'm being treated at Memorial Sloan Kettering here in New York, one of the world's best cancer hospitals, and thank God we're here. Uh, But I was admitted to the hospital on a Friday night with just unbelievable pain, like the worst pain I've ever felt in my life. And, you know, they ask you on a scale of one to 10, like, what's it feel like? And I said to the doctor, I was like, this is a nine. He goes, well, it sounds like you're describing a 10 to me. I said, I was like, Doc, I haven't been shot. Like, give me a little wiggle room so I can come back here later with a real 10. But like (laughs) for now, like this will do. And one of the problems I've had since then is is there's a chunk of this tumor that basically the good news is the treatment is working and it's necrotic. It's dying. But basically this large tumor, some of which is dead, is rubbing against other parts of my internal organs and it hurts and there is a lot of pain involved. And at this point, you know, part of this is it's a, it's a very holistic approach to, to medical care. And so it's like, I have an oncologist, I have a surgeon, I've already had a surgery. And I also now have somebody in the integrative medicine unit who just deals with the side effects of all this. All she deals with is pain sleeping, eating, all that kind of stuff. And so, yes, it hurts. There's a lot of pain associated. Um, But I know somebody else who's being treated right now. She's about my age. We've become close friends through all this. She's being treated through for pancreatic cancer. Like her cancer is more complicated than mine, but she does not have pain as a side effect. And so I think that there's a really... There's a wide array of how this disease affects people and how it, it, the what comes along with it. So, yeah, like pancreatic is what killed my father. Um, and I like it's funny because when we we first started talking about it, I was very nervous about asking too many specific questions. You know, about what stage are you in? Has it spread to your pancreas? Like, is it you know this or that or are you doing these tests just because anyone who's had a family member or who's gone through cancer them, themselves like has an inside glimpse that the average person doesn't have mm-hmm. how how do you feel like people talk to you about it and what do you think they i mean i think be honest like what do they get right what do they get wrong in terms of kind of the, the you know the ways to approach someone or to express empathy or curiosity about what you're dealing with i i, I don't think there's ways that I prefer, but I want to come out and say, like, I don't think there's a right or wrong way. And one thing I want to say about doing this whole interview, like you and I obviously talked about this. In the last year, I had gotten off of Facebook and Instagram. 
And so when stuff started to come up around my health, uh, a lot of people from our hometown like reached out to Brad because I was no longer on Facebook and Instagram. That had more to do with my tinfoil hat wearing self and not liking what Facebook and Instagram were doing to the world and or feeling like everything was an advertisement and why did I have to open myself up to these advertisements? There was, was just, nothing I was... Just to clarify though, Gareth, like your, your account's still pretty live and posts a lot of like pro-Trump, anti-AOC <laughs> propaganda and links to Russian TV shows. NRA forever, just one of many right-wing... Yeah, exactly. Um, and so Brad suggested we I come on the pod and do this as a way to sort of reach out to a lot of the people in my hometown or that might not be in touch anymore and clarify some of this. So what I want to say is quickly, um, there aren't really stages anymore, but what they described to me about my cancer is like, we've put it into, there's three categories for you. It's you have it in your liver and it's small enough. We can cut it out. You have it in your liver, but it's too widespread for surgery alone. We have to do chemotherapy to shrink it and then we can cut it out, which is what I have or it's spread beyond your liver and now you're dealing with more of a systemic cancer issue. So as of now, my cancer has not spread and that's the single most important thing to all this. This has been confined to my liver and that's the only place it is. But as far as like, one of the funniest things about talking to people and how to deal with it is my chemotherapy protocol, like I'm eight weeks into chemo and I go in every other week. I've at this point, I've had a one pound hockey puck sized pump surgically installed in my stomach uh, or on top of my stomach and a traditional chemotherapy port installed in my chest. So like I have Tony Stark style bionic stuff <laughs> and every two weeks I go in and they fill the pump up with chemotherapy solution that goes directly to my liver and only to my liver. And then through the port in my chest, they do, uh, there's about three hours worth of IV bags that just, that will run through my body to try to kill any rogue cancer cells outside of my liver, like to keep it from spreading, to also attack my liver, things like that. None of this has caused me to lose my hair. Like my chemo protocol, like I've kept my hair, but I've lost a ton of weight. And right. so all even, these people- Even when I visited, you had you had lost what I thought was like, and we didn't talk about it, but I was like, I bet you're down five or 10 pounds already. <laughs> yeah. And so basically I started this around 2.30 and I'm weighing like about 2.05 right now. So in like three months, I've lost 25 pounds and- you know, that's not good. And I have been told by my doctors at this point, they were like, you need to stop losing weight and eat whatever you calories you can, like just put some weight back on. And there's reasons I was losing weight, like surgery, days without solids, lots of time in hospitals. I got sick once, you know, like your appetite is seriously suppressed on chemotherapy. Everything tastes like metal, things like that. But so in, as people talk to me, it's just, I've had a really strange cancer experience where everyone's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry to hear you have cancer. And then they look me up and down and they're like, you look fantastic. You've <laughs> lost Bro, what? 20 pounds. What you are you doing? Full head of hair. <laughs> right. Like, 
And, and like, I feel like if we marketed this just right within two years in New York, you could have the cancer diet. Like, could you just give me a little bit of cancer before bikini season? <laughs> it's like, I uh, can knock out this 15 pounds. It's like Roni and Michelle, whatever. Like, mono is like the greatest diet, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so, um, part of my experience has been sort of how to take some of those compliments. And some of them even come from doctors, but in a different way. Like, one of the things they're big on at Sloan Kettering is like treat, treat the patient, not the diagnosis. And so they say like, if you're here in front of us looking good, feeling good, active, walking around every day, then we're going to assume you're doing well with the treatment. And so like for all the pain and stuff like that, like I've had to, you've got to learn. Some of it is like learning to manage it. And like, I'm on a lot of pain pills, which can make me tired, drowsy, drugged, what have you, but I try to take them all at night. So like I can hang out with the kids during the day and try to be more of a dad, um, you know, or just try to stay lucid when you're going to have to deal with people and be aware of when those occasions are going to be. And then can you deal with the pain during those times? Or if it gets too bad, just sort of check out for the day and say like, yeah, today's not like July 4th. I did not leave our bed. Like I, I was in a lot of pain. I spiked a fever. I, I've gotten fevers from the tumors itself can cause fevers as well as the chemotherapy. And I was just, I was in a lot of pain and had fevers all day. And just, I did not leave our bed on July 4th, but that's where like my parents have moved in down the block for the summer to help with the kids because they're out of school. And Amy, my wife, God bless her, has been amazing, but she just jumped in and just said, all right, we've got it. Like, you don't need to leave the bed. And so that day was, that day was bad. But then on Friday, like I woke up that night, my fever had broken. I felt a lot better and I was kind of back to leading a normal life on Friday, which my normal life right now is pretty close to home and I take a nap every day. Um, I'm easily exhausted, but at the same time, like if you saw me walking down the street, I look fairly normal and um, you know, and I appreciate all the people that uh, like have reached out via text phone or that I see in person who have something to say and just wishing me well, like it honestly, that's one of the most overwhelming parts. And at times like texting is like a source of dread just because I feel like I get behind or it's this sense of obligation that I owe people this, that, or the other thing. And it was very sweet. And, and I, I want everyone to know who's hearing this. Like, I appreciate it. And I want everyone to know who I don't know who might have someone in their life with, like, just reach out. Like, it means a lot whether you ever hear back from somebody. Um, but I was having real anxiety around that. And I've, I've talked to social workers at Sloan Kettering and my own therapist, but then a colleague of mine who had had breast cancer, like I was telling her about this and she took me aside and she was just like, you don't owe anybody anything. Just concentrate on what you need to do, do the best you can, and that's all there is to it. Yeah. And that was, that was really freeing. Yeah, I mean, and to be fair, I mean, you've always been dog shit about returning emails, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a long-standing weasel. So, that's you know. kind of your thing <laughs> in, in our relationship. No, I tell you what, it's funny because, well, it's not funny. Actually, the only yeah, time that... This, all the, the, there's a lot <laughs> no. of humor immediately accessible in all of this. It's one of the craziest parts. Like, I've described this to people as like, 
an extended psychedelic trip. Like you have access to the most terrifying thoughts about life and death imaginable, but it's also beautiful and funny and dark and it's wild, man. So it's funny. You can go with that. So the the only time I mean when, when we first talked, when we first ta- I was in Toronto when you you first called and you and we ended up texting that night and the only time I got like outwardly emotional, we, we were we were trading texts about you know, doing this a couple weeks back and, and you were saying, I'm going to tell the, we got to talk to the kids about it. And I just remember hanging up and, you know, I've, you know, I know your, I know your kids, I know your family. Um, you know, we have similar aged kids. What would, and I don't, I don't ask this to probe into your private life. I, I think for our listeners, I just think hearing someone like yourself, who's so open about this process might be instructive for somebody else who's going through it or might find this out of curiosity or whatever. What what was that conversation? If you don't mind talking about, it, what was that conversation like? Like, how do you explain that to children? Yeah, so we have a seven year old daughter and a four year old son, and it was so basically we got the diagnosis on a Thursday. And I mean, look, by the time you get that diagnosis, you know it's coming. Like you're you're. I've been in the hospital for right. three days. I've had a biopsy. Like it's not usually. Oh, it was all a mistake. <laughs> Whoops, you're going to be 40, better lose some weight, you know, scared straight. Uh, So we got the diagnosis on Thursday and, you know, it's a bizarre moment and, you know, everything's surreal and everything seems pointless. Like, how do you get home at that point? Like, driving seems pointless, taking a car, take a bus, whatever. So on Sunday, we we were like, we should tell the kids because we're going to have to start telling a lot of the parents in the neighborhood and and we don't want it to get back to them through that. Like there's about to be a lot of stuff going down. We need to let them know. And honestly, too, like especially our daughter at seven knew something was up because I'd been in the hospital for a few days and we're close and she was not cool with the idea of dad being in the hospital. So we sat them down on Sunday morning and we explained. Amy had done some research and she... We basically said, like, in your body, there's a part of your body called the liver. And what it does is it helps kind of filter everything that you eat or drink or whatever. And there's a disease you can get called cancer where cell bad cells start to grow in a part of your body. And daddy has liver, cancer in his liver. And Bill Halliday was immediately like, is that why he was in the hospital this week? We were like, yes. And they had to find that out. And they did a lot of tests, and that's what they determined. And so we said there's going to be a lot of, this is going to go on for a long time. And Daddy's going to be going to the hospital and to a lot of doctors to get a lot of tests done and to take uh, a lot of medicine that you might have heard of called chemotherapy. And Amy had specifically, at first she had said medicine, but then research had said you need to kind of specify, because like if the side effects become like losing a lot of weight, losing hair. Daddy takes medicine. Is that going to happen to me if I take medicine? So some of the best advice we got was like to be specific. Like daddy's medicine is called chemotherapy. Your medicine is called Tylenol when you have a fever. Like they are not the same thing. And so we have to make sure that, and like in general, the best advice we got to, we got about talking to kids was to be specific and don't necessarily offer up information unless they want it uh she immediately asked if it was the kind of medicine that makes you lose your hair and we were like yeah we'll see if that happens and she asked a few more questions i truthfully don't remember a lot of it and then we called our son in who's four and we started to explain to him 
And he just kind of looked lost through the whole thing and just said, can I go back and watch Paw Patrol? And we were like, absolutely. That's a great solution. (laughs) But I say all this to say that like what's been most interesting is what's happened since as it's all sort of settled in. Like I've spent the night, I've spent probably about in the last three months, I think I've spent about 15 nights in the hospital. And so it's been like incredibly disruptive to our family. Like once you get into chemotherapy, you're, your immune system's really compromised. There's a lot of things they're looking out for. Like if you get a fever, you have to go into the hospital. Pain, go into the hospital. I got a stomach bug from my son. Had to go into the hospital for three days on that just to get fluids. And they even said to me, they were like, normally you don't have to come into the hospital for this. You're a healthy 30-something father. They're like, you are at great risk of renal failure right now. You have to come into the hospital for this and get bags of fluid. Like, that's just... And so it's been disruptive for them, and they've started to realize it's a more serious thing. And so Wiley, the four-year-old, has been, in the last month or so, there's just been a lot of questions about, like, how long do you have cancer for? How long will this be going on for? And then what's been sweetest is that he's been... There's been a lot of, like... Daddy, what can I do to help? Can I hug you? Can we snuggle? Like, will that help you feel better? And things like that. Like, he's found this way. I think he understands there's not much he can do, but if he's just loving and affectionate, that that means something, and it's been beautiful. And then our daughter, who's older, who I think grasps more of this, She, we sent her to a counselor at school, and she was talking to a counselor and keeping a journal, um... But then when I went around father, it was Father's Day weekend was when I ended up in the hospital for pain. And I was released that Saturday and I came home. And Saturday night she said, Daddy, will you go to sleep with me? Or can we go to sleep in your bed? I'd like to go to sleep with you. And God, I was on so many drugs that night. I was like, yeah, I could go to sleep whenever you want, kid. Like, let's just go now. Right. And it was about 8.30 and she just reached over and grabbed me in a huge hug around my waist. And she was just crying, just huge tears and just said, daddy, I don't want to lose you. Am I going to lose you? And that's the single most heartbreaking moment of this entire thing is, uh, and it's not even, look, I think my odds are good and I've responded well to treatment and I want that on the record, like right now coming after that. But like, the idea that a seven-year-old would have to think that is heartbreaking and that it's my seven-year-old who even has to think that and that I put that in her head and is terrible and sad. And um, that's been one of the hardest moments of the whole thing. And then the next day she, she asked my wife at the park. She was like, I think she's sort of, the gravity of the whole thing has started to set in over the course of the summer. And she just said to her on father's day, she was like, is this is what daddy has. Could that kill him? Or like, could he die from it? I think is what she said. And then it was like, we knew that was coming eventually, but we weren't going to like address it until it arrived. And that was when it arrived. And, and Amy said, yeah, but we're doing all we can to make sure it doesn't happen. And, um, And she said something really beautiful that is hard for me to see in writing, but I respect her so much as a mother for saying it. She just said to her, "You, I want you to understand that if your father dies from this, it will be terrible and one of the most painful things you'll ever go through. 
and at the same time your life will go on and you can go on from that and have a long and happy life of your own and i love that she said that to her i can't i mean i can't believe she had the wherewithal in that moment to <laughs> right. come up with that and like <laughs> But I think a seven-year-old needs <laughs> like that to hear that. That almost made me cry right now. Like I don't. Yeah, it's a. It's a but you, you know, know what? It's a testament to the power of parenthood. When the chips are down, a lot of parents are at their absolute best in a way that is so difficult to describe. I like what you said. Like it brings out the best. It, some of the worst things bring out the best in us in a lot of ways, and I think that that's that's where we've seen it. But the, look, the kids have been outstanding. But like. You know, like this week, Amy took them on vacation without me because it was they were going up camping in remote Maine. And it was like two hours to the nearest hospital. And I was like, yeah, if something goes wrong at two in the morning and like you're in Maine, I'm driving. It's not going to work. Like it's important for them to have a semblance of summer. And it's important for me to just kind of deal with this as it comes So just take them and go like you as a, as parents, you figure out a way to make it okay for them. And they've been great. So, well, I do want to pivot into like more fun stuff. We did talk about this being like a fun conversation. Let me, let me just close this part of it with this. I started to hear from people because they mentioned you on the final four broadcast. They said, you know, right, Garrett's, right, you right. know, what did that mean to you to like, I look, you, you contribute to the final four super bowl, like all these mega moments, but like, what did it mean to you to, for them to kind of publicly acknowledge how much you mean to the CBS Sports community like that? Because, again, I think p- people were reaching out to me en masse. I can't imagine. Was it a, a special... Well, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Just what, what was that like? No, it was one of the strange... Like, the, it... Let me put it to you this way. That week at the Final Four was when I was getting diagnosed. And so, like, there... That's one that, I don't know, the emotion wrapped up in it for me is hard because it's also sort of, um, I mean, that was an incredible moment, but it, it it's, there's a mixed emotion too because that's when it became very, very tangible and real. Like that, that whole final, this whole final four is a weird one for me to ever think back on. Um, cause I didn't make it there, you know, like I, I was in hospitals the whole time. Like I was getting diagnosed literally at the exact same moment, like my big shoot would go off every year, you know? And so like being that announcement was very, it was beautiful and I, I loved it and appreciated it so much. And it was Greg Gumbel who did it and like Greg and I have worked together. And so, and I consider him a friend and like, that's what means so much to me was that these were my friends reaching out as opposed to, you know, this big public thing that it was like my friends on the cruise that had put this together and working in the studio and things like that. That's what meant most to me was just the, the personal touch of it. But then I will say like, that's what sort of kicked it into a different sort of stratosphere as far as like friends reaching out and just sort of like, Whoa, what's going on now? I will say that, like Amy and I said early on, we're going to go all public with everything, you know, because we didn't know, like, if I start losing my hair or, and she's also like, you live your life in a fairly, like, out kind of way, let's just embrace it. So it's not like it was a problem, but it was like when, as you described that night, like, that's when you get, like, John Barronswick and Todd Daniels and people I haven't been in touch with in a long time reaching out, like, whoa, I was just watching the Final Four, what's going on, that 
changes things. So, right. um, so yeah. Well, okay. So you had mentioned before you got some downtime and look, CBS sounds like they've been awesome, right? Like just letting they've you. They've been amazing. It's like, it's a, I, I can't say enough good things about them and it's, it's been beautiful and wonderful. And in a lot of ways, I think this entire experience, um, has been one of the most beautiful things I've ever gone through as far as like emotion and perspective and getting to know, like getting back together with old friends and talking to people and things like that. And so, and CBS and the role that CBS sports has played in that is a huge part of it. We were going to talk Barry. And then you said, I have something else I want to talk to you about. So hit me with it. Okay. So one of the biggest questions I've gotten from people is like, you must have a lot of downtime. What are you watching? What are you watching? And we watched Barry and I loved Barry season two, and I thought about wanting to talk about that. And then we kind of kicked the can down the road on this interview, and I, I don't think talking about Barry seems super fresh. And then I went through <laughs> no. a phase of listening to you had come out, and when you visited, we talked a lot about uh, Are You Talking REM, Re Me? <laughs> yes. And so I went through a phase of listening to that pod, and then I went through a long phase of listening to Murmur. And early REM, which might not be your intent, because I know you've been on a late REM kick, but it, I listened to a lot of early REM. And then, but there was never any show that stuck as far as like, this is what I'm binging or this is what I'm doing. I've been reading a lot and I've done a lot of cross, or I've done a lot of jigsaw puzzles. I've been going for long walks, but until it occurred to me in the last couple of weeks, there's one thing that has really stuck that I will watch whenever it is on. I will watch any episode of Guy Fieri's Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives right now <laughs> that you put on television. Donkey sauce, bro. What? Buddy, I I have to tell you, that is the most relentlessly positive television. I'm about eight blocks south of the famous Wrigley Field on Sheffield Avenue. Now, this is the avenue where everybody stands when someone hits a home run and they run them for the ball. But we're not here to talk about baseball. We're not even here to talk about Chicago dogs. We're here to talk about burgers that are right on. This is DMK Burger Bar. Head chef Michael Cornick is cranking out real deal burgers and homemade sides like a truffle aioli for the fries. Let's get this going. Truffle aioli. A couple of egg yolks and get this emulsion running with just a little bit of the lemon juice and serve with the truffle cream. Mm. Crunchy, exterior, tender, such a richness. More importantly to me than anything, skin on. See, I like pepper on my fries too. The aioli, nice, it melts right into the fries. I mean, real deal, man. Real deal. Guy loves everything. And so whenever this show is on at this point, I will watch it because, man, that stuff is, like, it's straight dopamine, dude. Like, it's feel-good television. of the. It is not Chernobyl. It is not Barry. <laughs> like, I, I asked a friend, I was like, should I watch Chernobyl? And my friend is Jewish, and this is important to the story. He texted back. He was like, I don't know, dude. Chernobyl's awesome, but the biggest fear of everybody on the show is, are they going to get cancer? If the biggest fear of a given show was, am I going to become Jewish? I might not enjoy it as much. You know, like there's no danger of that in watching Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives or Triple D as it's also known. Like 
everything you see is going to be delicious and they're going like the people who made it are going to have loved making it the people who are eating it are going to love eating it it is it is television dopamine and i cannot recommend it highly enough for anybody suffering from cancer so i hear exactly what you're saying i think a lot of those shows i i would lump okay so bourdain i think perfected the art of going into a community and like literally exploring the soul of the people there through food, both well-known and unexpected. And I think that yeah. Bourdain's show is like art in a way. It's like a documentary. I mean, it's, it's really a snapshot of Americana that I, I think is a miracle. Now I don't, yeah, put, I mean, Oh, go ahead. Marco Pierre White, when he died, called him the Hemingway of food. And I think it's accurate. And I think that Bourdain was a genius and a great writer and honed his voice and what he did was amazing, amazing. So it is what it is. But that is its own thing. But like on the next tier down, I appreciate Guy for going into places like it, it, it's so, okay. Everyone knows that like yes, like shows will go into like these like kind of famous touristy shacks that are kind of dialing up, turning up their their diviness because that's the appeal. Well, I yes. think what I think he does though the, the secret sauce that the donkey sauce, if you will, that he cracks with that show is that he'll go into like these like really generic strip mall places, and you just look at it and you're like, these are the exact types of places that I have driven by in Peoria, Illinois, or in the north side of Chicago when I'm just trying to get an oil change at the place you know three doors down, and I would never go in there, and then you see like. Yes, it's like generic inside, fluorescent lights, but the people in there are, they have a rich history of, you know, with food, uh, they have recipes they've they have really slaved over, and I, I have been, you know, taken a bit by, I mean, I didn't know you were going to go this direction, but I do understand the appeal of him going to to spots that are completely overlooked by most of what we would call a glossy food television. Well, and yeah, and there's a lot like, I think this, there's a lot of them that take place, like you said, at truck stops. And I'm like, man, I think especially, Brad, this is going to start to, here, here's where we're really going to go off the deep end. <laughs> especially in the early seasons. And you can oh, always no. tell they're the early seasons because he has less tattoos on his forearms. But he's going oh, wait, to quick, a lot. Real quick, I did see a tweet. I, I was looking for it right now, and I, I can't find it. But someone was like, I'm having sort of an existential crisis realizing that I've been watching Guy Fieri for like weeks. And I and I, and I just found myself saying, huh, he looks thin in this one. You know, like, yeah, yeah. I could find the tweet because I kind of jumped into that Twitter conversation, Brad. Oh, um, okay. I so, will yeah, send it to you. you. That makes so much more sense than it was like, Gareth Hughes liked. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, what started out it was Mike Drucker uh, wrote, depression is watching diners, drives-ins, and dives, and whispering, wow, Guy Fieri is young in this one. <laughs> and then somebody responded with, depression is watching diners, drive-ins, and dives, full stop. And I replied, and this is what inspired this, no, incorrect. It is one of the most relentlessly positive, joyous shows on television. Everything Guy eats is the best thing he's ever tasted. And these small business owners who are cooking for their lives are pro so proud to serve him this food. It is a TV antidepressant. You are um, instantly muted. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It's like, why does Louie not talk to me anymore? But you can tell, like, he's, he's thinner and he gets more tattoos. 
as the show goes along. Um, but especially in the early episodes, yes, he's going to a lot of like really out of the way places. Like there was one episode I was watching this afternoon to prepare for the pod where he went to a former truck stop in Eastern Kentucky where they had just basically removed the restaurant became so successful. They removed all the pumps from the truck stop and just made it a restaurant. And I so loved the way this lady's coconut cream pie looked. I was like, I'm going to look up that recipe. And it turns out they had to close the restaurant closed a couple of years ago because she was too old and didn't want to do some like required maintenance on it. But I'm like, man, this guy's been doing this. That was filmed in 2008. This guy is 11 years into it. But at least at the beginning, especially like he was going to Eastern Kentucky, bro. That is like Eastern Kentucky is like West Virginia, Southeastern. Like there's nothing there. There's nothing there. And so the fact that he was willing to go to these places, especially because if you start to watch a lot more of Food Network programming, they'll send somebody to a restaurant in segment one. And then segment two, when they're like, now we're in San Francisco to look at how great this cheeseburger is, you'll notice the chef or the person isn't actually there and they're just reporting on it remotely. Guy is always there, dude. He always shows up. He is part of the charm. He has to be there. And so he's he's the donkey sauce, dude. Like his energy and the energy he brings out of people is what makes it all work. What What's one thing he's eaten that you would be like, you never thought you would have found appealing? Well, I think all of it like starts to look appealing. And I think what one of the things he does that I think is smart is he starts to look for, um, he, he finds things like they're not all, they're not actually all diners, drive-ins or dives, Brad. And you know, like there's, I'm going to go to a steakhouse today or something like that. I think he, for all the crap and as much fun as we had at his expense when he opened his place in New York and it got trashed in the New York Times food reviews, um, I do think he's looking for people who are cooking honest food or food that is honest to what they're doing. And that that's what makes the best television out of it. And that's what gets the best reaction out of him. And then if he starts reacting well, that's what gets the best reaction out of the people that are cooking for him. And so... I don't know, like he went to a pizza place in Boulder that I was just like, this is instantly appealing to me. But again, like he, him making coconut cream pie with a 72-year-old woman today had me Googling a restaurant in Eastern Kentucky and or did she ever publish that coconut cream pie recipe because I would like to make it because it looked so good. Um, he also went to a place in Oklahoma recently, like a steakhouse in Oklahoma, and they talked about how they made sheep brain stew and that he is not an adventurous eater. Like, he's not of the Andrew Zimmern wild eats kind of thing. Like, that's not his shtick. But he'll always try it wherever he is. I think he knows that that's part of the, like, the etiquette is that he has to do this. Or he has to eat things with eggs on it, which he doesn't like. Which is so weird to me because eggs are A, in everything now, and B, kind of basic. But I, it's just, it's a great quirk. It's a great character quirk in him if you like you were writing this chef like oh and he doesn't like eggs it's kind of ideal um but yeah i don't know if that's not as specific an answer but like i will eat anything that he does you know like i will i would go to anywhere he goes what about his restaurant what about his own restaurant would you eat that (laughs) 
<laughs> I will go. I would if I was in California. I would now. His restaurant in New York is closed. If I was in California, I would go to a Guy Fieri restaurant. Did but you? I'd rather just. I want. I would rather eat with him and just have have him be like, "Yo, I know a spot. Let's go here." That's what I'm looking for from him. Did you appreciate the? Was it the New York Times or the New Yorker like utter takedown of his Times Square restaurant? It was the New York Times. Like it. Look, I think that's one of those moments of criticism that veers into cultural criticism, not actual criticism. Like, they were clear, like, was this an actual critique of a restaurant? Like, is this serving the readers of the New York Times who are actually ever going to go to Guy's All-American restaurant in Times Square? Like, I would argue no. I think this, I think the writer, I forget who it was at the time, might have been Pete Wells, it doesn't matter, like they saw a good opportunity to kind of have a takedown at this sort of larger, arguably pernicious food culture that can afford someone like Guy Fieri so much money that he can afford to open this restaurant. But I do think that there, and look, you can argue his image and that he's the living embodiment of, you know, like flames on a car. He gives away tons of money to charity everybody who works in his restaurants has health insurance like the more you start to learn about this guy he's actually a decent dude and i don't know like there's something about i love that i'll have lived in i'm coming up on 10 years living in new york and i love like haughty cultural criticism and anything like that at the same time i kind of think it's more important to have decent people in the world who are trying to get by in a positive way than not. And boy, if you told me that I was nearing 40 and speaking about and trying to defend Guy Fieri to the New York Times and I had lost that much cultural cachet and that much cynicism, <laughs> I'd be shocked. But maybe cancer really reprioritizes some things, man. Yeah, I and like, know. I mean, what, what, why do people need health insurance, you know? I mean, come on. <laughs> right. Don't worry about it. Exactly. <laughs> well, Brad, literally, as soon as this is over, I'm getting off the phone and going to the, the drugstore to pick up more medicine. So, yes, exactly. So. Um, I, what other food shows... If you had to power rank your top three, so you'd put guy one or Bourdain one. I mean, Bourdain's the all-time best. Bourdain, like Bourdain, is like reading the New Yorker. Bourdain was the best produced and the best shot and the best written. Um, he's out. He exists on a plane all his own. This stuff to me is this is cancer watching. Like when people are like, "What?" Are, like a friend of mine said when she had cancer and was stuck at home, all she watched was Glee. And another friend of mine said she watched Mamma Mia on repeat. I think that this is my version of that. Like, um, just, and I, I've said to somebody, I was like, I will watch any food show right now where people eat something and enjoy it. Like Michael Simon's Burgers, Brews, and Q is uh, uh, an okay stand-in when Triple D is not on. Um, but one of the reasons I've also gravitated toward Triple D is... Uh, if you're part of the up late and infirm, my, my, my circadian rhythms have been off on cancer the entire time. And I'm up a lot of nights from like 3am to 5am doing nothing. Some nights I read and like, I'll read a ton of books, but other nights I don't want to read. And Little known fact, there's a lot of Triple D on after midnight, bro. Like, you can find a lot of it 
repackaged into hour-long specials. Now, I have not gone so far as to start taping old episodes so that I'll always have them. But I will let you know, and I will let the listeners know when that happens. So, I mean, I never really liked Chopped or things like that. I did like Man vs. Food when it was on. I found it somewhat uh, Man vs. Food has been rebooted. They have a new host, Casey Webb. It's on Tuesday nights at 10. I have been watching a bit of that as well. So, okay. um, yes. Uh, he is also... It, that's still following the same format and is another one that I will watch. But just... I tend to like the first 20 minutes when he's in full Guy Fieri mode before he goes into the challenge mode where it either gets gross or disgusting. So Yeah, I, I agree. And in fact, the, the editing on those things is so bad because I think the early stuff kind of goes by and then they they just like make the final challenge 12 minutes instead of... It, it should be like 45 seconds. Just get it through. You know, get it done. Yeah, you, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and it's a lot of theater where the, the crowd is like being prompted to chant. I, those of us who have worked in any form of production can smell like the desperation yes. of behind the scenes fake energy and just, ugh, I, I do not like that. I'd rather just put me in the kitchen with these guys and they're having fun. Oh, so, hey, the, the guy model, I guess. Uh, yeah, you're selling me on it. <laughs> if you're having a bad day, suffering from cancer. Brad, if you're traveling and there's nothing good on television and you just want something that will entertain you and make you feel good for about 22 minutes or for about an hour on some of the repackaged specials they do, like best steaks, best desserts, things like that, best breakfasts. Those that's by the way, the hour-long specials is a lot of what you get in the late night hours. Um if you're looking for something in those moments, that's when you turn to diners, drive-ins, and dives. So that's where nice. it can be a, a healthy part of any television diet. It's beautifully said, man. Mm-hmm.